What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. What is this place? You know how when you humans are really into something and it feels like you're in another place? It feels like you're in the zone, right? Yeah. Well, this is the zone. It's the space between the physical and spiritual. Wait a minute. I was here. I don't know if I was in the zone all that much in 2020, Adam, but when I was, it was probably thanks to the movies. I'm with you there, Josh. This week, it's our 2020 wrap party. We'll share our favorite movie moments of the year, the ones that made us laugh, made us cry, made us want to dance, and yes, made us forget, if only fleetingly, just how bad things were in the world. That clip we heard was from Pixar's Soul, a film that did all those things for me, the 2020 rap party, and more. I talk this way just to annoy people. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting with Josh and Adam. First, a thank you to you, Josh, for taking the reins last week and kicking off the new year with our friend from the Chicago Tribune, Michael Phillips. Now, sure I have thing. to confess... I haven't mm-hmm. listened to the show yet, and that's because I have yet to see News of the World, the Paul Greengrass movie you reviewed starring Tom Hanks, though I could listen to the Wonder Woman part because I have since caught up with Wonder Woman 1984, and I'll say that Wonder Woman 84 is a movie I have seen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm happy for you. I don't know why you, you did that to yourself, um, <laughs> but yeah, you can check it off your list now. Yeah, I'm sure the show was great. My thanks again to Michael for stepping in. It's a fun show this week, one I'm glad to be back for our 2020 wrap party. Maybe not as much fun, though, Josh, as we would normally have. We've done at least one of these in studio before, but we started these wrap parties as a way to look back on the year with a live audience, with our listeners, and I certainly miss that. Oh, yeah. I I see those photos pop up, you know, anniversary photos every January from our live rap parties. And especially this year, it kind of kind of hurts to not to be able to do that again. We will make of it what we can. We will announce the winner of the Film Spotting Golden Brick Award, which goes to our favorite movie from a new or emerging filmmaker. That's a bit later in the show. So let's jump right in to the rap party, our five usual categories, Josh, our funniest scene, our most moving scene, our music moment of the year, and finally, our scene of the year. But of course, we start at the beginning with our favorite opening scene. What was it for you that just set the table perfectly for a movie that you ended up enjoying, Josh? Yeah, that your question makes me think have we ever had an, uh, a runner-up or a nominee for a movie we didn't enjoy where it just had like a killer opening and then fell off a cliff? Probably not. Um, I mean, we might have a good moving moment or a funny moment or a good music moment, maybe even a scene of the year from a lackluster film, but we probably don't get a great opening scene from a bad movie, do we? Usually they follow through, I think. Yeah. And that's that's the case uh, definitely for the ones I considered. The honorable mentions for me here First Cow is maybe the most unassuming opening, but that in the weeds camera placement in the present day, you know, Mm -hmm. just so crucial in connecting us with the past that we're then going to be immersed in. I also thought about the midnight funeral procession that opens Vitalina Varela, uh, the Pedro Costa film, and it's 
it's going to hypnotize you or make you realize, whoa, I'm in for a really long film. I fell under the trance with that funeral procession. The Vast of Night, a Golden Brick nominee, Adam. We've talked about the long take that opens the film, but I'd even include that zoom, the actual opening shot, which is a zoom into this vintage television Mm -hmm. that's playing an episode of Paradox Theater and kind of telling us, okay, we're going to be in an episode for the entirety of this film. I love that. Uh, And one more here that I did consider was the sneaking out sequence for the invisible man. Um, it just, you know, Lee Willell, the director there, already employing empty space with the camera, that one pan to an empty space, letting us know that there could be a threat there, which of course is what the entire movie is going to end up being. But I went with one that just a powerhouse opening right away. I knew it was going to be a good film. I knew it was going to be a Golden Brick nominee because of this opening, and that is the Sailor's Shanty from Blow the Man Down. And I'm not, with this pick, Adam, I'm not trying to jump on the sea shanty trend on TikTok. You know, I'd be cool with the kids. I guess I'd have to say, yeah. would I st- would I stand TikTok shanties? Is that how I'd say it then, yeah. Adam? Yeah. Okay, good. Nice work. No, this, this, was, this was something... I jotted down as a likely rap party candidate when I first saw it way back at the beginning of 2020, this craggy fisherman looking at the camera, sitting on a lobster crate, singing the title song right to us. On an New England Isle in a good seaport town, to me below the man down. The fishing pays nicely if you don't drown. Give me some time to blow the man down. Where boys become green. And it's not just the shanty, though, for this opening. It's also the composition and the camera work that we get from the directors. As these other men join in, they're, they're kind of lined up in prominent profile, very striking. Then we get these insert shots that are cataloging the gruesomeness of their profession. You know, there's the, the fish being stabbed by a pitchfork, I think. There's even a hook going through an eye at one point. Um, and what is that doing? That's, of course, setting us up for the gruesomeness to come in the murder plot. Um, so that's just, you know, all of that kind of adds to the fun. It's a weird balance going on in this uh, opening sequence. The little touch, how about the touch where we go back to that sailor who's looking at the camera? He gives us a wink, and that's punctuated by this ding of a nautical bell. So there's there's playfulness, there's gore, there's um, you know a little bit of threat here, and that's what uh, the directors here, Bridget Savage-Cole and Daniel Crudy, put together to kind of grab us right at the start and blow the man down. Yeah, it's such a good choice. And we did not share our picks with each other ahead of time. That's probably a good thing because it would have sent me reeling and scrambling, Josh, at least with this category, because you pretty much covered all of my choices. I, too, wanted to acknowledge First Cal, the subtle but so crucial to the power of that movie present day bookends that we get. Yes, the sailor shanty, blow the man down, one we would both consider for a great music moment of the year, escaping Mm -hmm. the mansion in The Invisible Man. Now, here's one you didn't say, and it's another one that could qualify as a great music moment and certainly one of the funniest moments of the year for me. It's the opening of Emerald Fennel's Promising Young Woman, which Mm. is set to the 2017 Charlie XCX song. And since you're so tight with the kids, I know that you're really down Mm. with Charlie XCX, the song Boys. And as the writer-director Emerald Fennel herself has described it, we hear that song Boys. I was busy thinking about boys. 
accompanying images of slow-mo crotch thrusts of a thousand nightclubs. So it's all just like <laughs> your biggest bros ever, all wearing khakis. So many khakis. Just so, so many, many khakis. khakis. <laughs> Khaki crotches set to boys. And you want to talk about establishing what that movie <laughs> really fundamentally is about and its tone. I love the opening to Promising Young Woman. But my number one choice is another one you mentioned, and it's the gym or what I'm calling McBroom is looking for you from Andrew Patterson's The Vast of Night. Depending on where you want to cap it, this opening, Josh, is probably about 18 minutes long from mm. that opening conceit that we're entering this Twilight Zone-esque TV show world, like you mentioned, to then these two main characters, Everett and Faye. And Everett's walking her to work, and then he's heading to work in his shift at the radio station. And we touched on this as this movie has come up a bit, certainly in December as a Golden Brick candidate. Movies that are within the realm of fantasy or sci-fi, very often they're about world building. And that comes into play right at the beginning of these films. And that usually means you're establishing a lot of rules. And you're also establishing stakes and different plot elements that are going to be crucial over the course of the movie. And this opening, in contrast, is insinuating, it's coy, and it only slightly hints at the plot because you've got Everett being summoned to this basketball game radio broadcast to figure out something that's kind of going wrong with the radio equipment. Otherwise, it's all about character and it's all about this physical space, not just the gym. But the parking lot, the neighborhoods, the town itself, we see it all through these tracking shots, some at a low angle, kind of creeping behind Everett and Faye as they walk and talk. And there's something about it that's simultaneously very kind of soothing and comforting and then also a little bit sinister, right? Like you feel like they're being followed and the camera is this this presence, this kind of ethereal, undefinable presence that is trailing them. And going back to that paradox theater conceit and this whole town, you do feel this familiarity, even if it's only from TV shows that we've all watched from the past. Everything kind of seems to be in its place. And there's kind of this folksy nature to all the conversations that happen with the people in the cars who are coming to the game. This idea that maybe nothing in this town ever changes, right? Everything is just totally ordinary and everyone knows everyone and everything they're up to. And this is the night where this all really gets shattered. And I think the, the opening dialogue sets it up with talk about cell phones and how, you know, in the future, we're all going to have these devices. And if you don't hear from someone, Faye says, then it means they're dead because everyone just assumes that they're going to get back to you instantaneously, which actually isn't that far off, Josh, from the world <laughs> that we obviously currently inhabit. So there's just this sense of the order of things being upset, but it's not maybe 20 years in the future or 40 years in the future. It's, it's right now. There is something that is just in the air that is going to change everything. There's even kind of a mammoth thing going on with the language, right? In the way it's stylized, the repetition of certain phrases, just the entire pace and the, the pattern of it, I think, is so crucial to the success of this scene, in addition to the, the camera work, the tracking shots, and, of course, the cinematography. I don't want to have to light my next cigarette, Benny. I got one right here that'll do the tick. McBroom's looking for you. Why? I'm not sure why. I was at supper. Flinger's sister was just giving you to talk about him. No, she wasn't. Oh, yes, she was. In her car with Millie right when I was walking up. 
Great damn dogs, what was that? I think that's why they were calling. Well, make me feel better, Benny, make me feel better. This is not good. Arlo's under the stands figuring it out, because last time it happened, it was a squirrel that had bitten through a wire, but the wire was still in the squirrel's mouth of the skeleton. So it just locks all the electrics. We can't roll if it's slicker. I don't know, I was at supper. Hey, how many times do you want to tell me you're at supper, Benny? I think we accept that, uh, the patter that you're talking about, we accept it because of the construct of this being a TV show, which the camera, the first thing it does is take us right into Paradox mm-hmm. Theater. And it's it's interesting to think about how that alters our expectations immediately as viewers. We'll accept the sort of stylized, heightened dialogue. We'll accept the very premise. Um, and we'll, we'll kind, we have different expectations now on The Vast of Night than we would if we just walked into it as, say, a straight-up Spielbergian sci-fi adventure. Mm-hmm. This is something that is that, but it's also working under the confines of a Twilight Zone-ish episode. And it kind of gives it kind of gives Patterson, he's giving himself more room to move there, I think, a little more freedom by For sure. establishing this construct. And we buy it because he establishes it so entertainingly. That brings us to our funniest scene of the year. What's your pick? So you could probably pick any of Rada Blank's raps in the 40-year-old version. I think one or two of those hit on more serious things, but especially some of the earlier ones are just so funny. Um, I wanted to mention a submission that I saw on Twitter. This came from the Good, the Bad, and the Nerdy podcast. I'm not sure if it was Tom or Kevin tweeting, um, but they mentioned when Pizza Cat meets Pizza Rat in Seoul. Just a great like throwaway (laughs) visual gag that I loved. The whole exchange, this also was something that came up on Twitter. I saw both Adam Gorman and Scott Harvey suggest it. The whole exchange between Borat and the guy at the, um, it's it's like a Kinko's or a UPS store or something where he's faxing messages back to his superiors and they're just these crude, insane messages. Right. And this guy who, re- he just receives them with, he's not bothered at all. He's nope. not going to comment. He's just going to do his job. What did he write? He sent you a bunch of angry faces. If you do not deliver a bribe to get me into Strongman Club, you will be executed. You will find a new gift for him or you will die. What, what else do a powerful men here like? And how about Carrie Coon? I mean, this is a little different type of humor, but how about Carrie Coon at dinner? at that restaurant where she kind of takes over in the nest. Such a good pick. (laughs) Didn't think about it in the context of humor, but it is hilarious. It's so funny. Um, But my pick, I mean, I think at this point, Adam, I'm just going to have to name this the Rachel McAdams Honorary Award because I gave this to her along with Jason Bateman at our 2018 rap party for their bullet removal scene in Game Night. Oh, there's so much blood. (laughs) No, no, don't you start doing that. No, you're going to make... Here, 2020, I'm going with McAdams again in what is really, it's almost a throwaway line in Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. She co-starred there with Will Ferrell. This is a moment that's a bad pick. I'm going to say right up front, Adam, for this show, because it's it requires a lot of context. It's sort of a payoff line that the previous 20 minutes or so of the movie has been building up to in little details, little story elements. Yeah. And so I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to describe it further than that. I'll just say that, yes, the elves did indeed go too far. (laughs) So Rachel McAdams, congratulations. I guess she's sort of the Meryl Streep, my Meryl Streep of the film spotting 
rap party. Um, that's going to be my funniest moment. Okay. I am all in favor of naming these categories after different performers who have maybe graced these lists and have graced them multiple times. And I am certainly on board with Rachel McAdams. Now, I still have not finished the movie Eurovision Song Contest, <laughs> The Story of Fire Saga, because it's, it's as long as the title, right? <laughs> but but I have seen a good chunk of it, including that part, and it's oh, a very good pick, Josh. So All right. I commend you for that. With some nods to, of course, the great Rob Bryden and Steve Coogan from The Trip to Greece, also Jim Cummings and The Wolf of Snow Hollow, Multiple moments in those films that crack me up. Maybe not one that stands out the way some of these choices do, Josh. But I think about Bill Murray as Felix and Sofia Coppola's On the Rocks talking his way out of a speeding ticket. Are you Tommy O'Callaghan's kid? Sir? Is Tommy your pop? Tom, yes. That's my dad. (laughs) Well, we go way back. I'm going to call him. No, 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 sir. Please put the phone away. I also thought about maybe not one of those moments that truly makes you laugh out loud, but just bemuses you in the same way it does the person hearing the line. The moment in Mank when Gary Oldman as Mank gets into the car with Marion Davies, she's just finished her contract with MGM. There's been a whole to do about it with some cameras and different people crowding around and she's pulling out through the lot. He wants to convince her to go back and say something, I think to Louis B. Mayer and she's not willing to do it. And her explanation is I already made my exit. (laughs) And this is a point in the movie where I think we've all come to actually identify with Marion Davies a little bit. And we see them as kind of co-conspirators and a lot of what's happening in Mank. And in that moment, she really shows kind of who she truly is. And at that point, she can't give a second thought to going back. It wouldn't be dramatic enough, right? Right. So that moment is one that really stuck with me. How about the visual text tag in Charlie Kaufman's I'm Thinking of Ending Things when we see a glimpse of a terrible-looking kind of lifetime movie playing on a TV screen, I think, in a diner? Yes. And... At the end, the credits come up and it says directed by Robert oh, Zemeckis. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Which, if you're a big Zemeckis defender as you are, you might get offended by that. But apparently, I've read some of the backstory. And yes, there's a whole explanation there. And Kaufman got his permission. And it's just kind of a yeah, great, I saw great that too. movie in-joke, right? <laughs> Another one I considered my runner-up is... I think it's the meet cute. And I keep saying I think because I just didn't have time to go back and find every one of these scenes within the context of the film. But when Niles, Andy Samberg, is trying to get Christian Milati, her character Sarah, out on the dance floor, and it's that whole choreographed sequence where, similar to Phil Connors and Groundhog Day, who knows every step everyone's going to take, he knows what everybody on the dance floor is going to do. It's the synchronized seduction, which includes my favorite parts the same guy the same drunk guy who at one point kind of kneels down on the ground and Sandberg does this roll over his back and then a few seconds later he knows the guy is going to collapse onto the ground so he gets a chair out so he can fall nicely into that i do love that scene i'm glad you mentioned palm springs because so many people throughout pics on social from that movie but they were all different moments so that that's one where it was kind of like there wasn't one grand big hilarious moment Mm -hmm. for me but yeah a lot of good ones like that and 
that was a dance scene. It's going to be the first of many. I alluded to this, I think, on one of our top 10 episodes that the most exciting moments of the year from a lot of movies for me turned out to be these moments of movement. So that's just the first of more to come. My funniest moment, though, my choice here, Josh, is one that's maybe a little bit off the beaten path, perhaps more amusing than hilarious. But it's one I still think about all the time. And it's an end scene that doesn't actually spoil anything. One you mentioned in passing during our top 10 show, because this movie, The Truffle Hunters, was my number six movie of the year. And this <laughs> is the movie. The window. <laughs> yeah, this is the movie that's mostly <laughs> so about older men in northern Italy and their dogs who make a living by finding this delicacy, the Alba truffle. And there's a recurring bit with one of them who keeps, I think, kind of getting hurt. He's got these physical issues. He's maybe the eldest of all the men that we meet. And he talks about his wife bemoaning how he continues to work. We later see an exchange between them where she scolds him and basically forbids him to go back out and work. And then I think I'm right that it is the last shot of the movie. Another so, still yeah. shot. One of these tableau compositions that the movie is almost entirely constructed on where we see a ground floor window pushed open and this old man appears and he steps out ever so quietly and carefully <laughs> so he can sneak away. It's like early morning, sun just coming up so he can sneak out and seek these truffles. This guy has to be, what, at least 80 years old, Josh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and at least. the folly of him having to crawl out his own window to avoid detection and upsetting his wife it is funny. It's really funny. And it is also an example of what makes Truffle Hunter so good, capturing these types of moments that that show versus telling, show in a poetic and amusing way the work and the people who do it. Well, and as you describe it, too, that's also a payoff gag, right? It's totally been set up in all those scenes you mentioned where we kind of smile during those, like these two going back and forth. And uh, and then we get what <laughs> you're talking about. And that's when you laugh out loud. <laughs> so before we get to our most moving scenes of the year, we did want to take a couple of minutes to talk about some of the non 2020 films we watched last year. New films, of course only make up a portion of a healthy movie diet. That's definitely true for us as we like to embark upon a couple of marathons each year. We dedicated series to Betty Davis, also overlooked auteurs, all films directed by women. We had our first oeuvre review, rewatching all of Christopher Nolan's films in anticipation of Tenet. And we followed up our 9 from 99 series a couple of years back with our 8 from 84 deep dive. But we also watched a lot of stuff with our families and even occasionally, we watch things for no good reason at all, Josh. So what were, for you, some of the standout non-2020 films that you watched or rewatched, maybe? Yeah, I had to go to Letterboxd to kind of remind myself of some yep. of this. And it was interesting because they, they'll give you a pie chart there. And in 2020, 65% of my watches were actually older releases. So exactly what you're talking about. Maybe rewatches, maybe older films for the first time. Probably the majority of them were things... Like you described, we did for the show. Um, so, yeah, so only 35% were 2020 titles last year. One of the things we did kind of inspired by the Betty Davis Marathon, which we wrapped up the first half of last year, watched a lot of those films with the family, um, and they enjoyed them. So we kind of thought, hey, let's 
let's pick someone else, another classic Hollywood star to follow. And the Criterion Channel at the time had a great collection of Joan Crawford films. So we managed to knock out like, I think four or five of those, that collection, most of the titles are now off the channel, unfortunately. But before that happened, we watched, um, she was in two films with the same title, Possessed, 31 and 47. Watched both of those, which was kind of made an interesting comparison point for um, not only the stories, but also the eras and the stage Joan Crawford was at in her career. Uh, watched Grand Hotel, which was a rewatch for me, but showed that one to the family. And then this one, I'd never heard of before this, Our Dancing Daughters, 1928. So very early Crawford film. And interestingly, my older daughter, we just brought her to, to college and she's in a film course there, American History on Film. They're going to watch Our Dancing Daughters. So really? I feel like, you know, yeah, I, re I really helped her get a leg up there. The weirdest one we came across was The Unknown, 1927. Um, Crawford has a small part. It's an absolutely wild movie. She plays a circus performer who's caught between uh, two men, basically the circus's grabby strongman, played by Norman Carey, and then Alonzo, who's played by Lon Chaney, this armless contortionist, and his act involves throwing knives at Crawford with his feet. I'll just say Cheney does a lot of feet acting in this, and it gets incredibly, incredibly weird. So that's where we're at. We're going to keep going. There's obviously really? a ton of good stuff that Crawford's made. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. So that was a highlight, kind of in a similar vein, uh, Olivia de Havilland passed away in July, and a lot of people were talking about their favorite movies of hers. So we picked one that, um, again, I wasn't even familiar with at all, The Dark Mirror. Um, she plays twin, possibly murderous sisters. I, I just love, when I go back to these like really old films, maybe in your mind you think everything was stately back then, right? And respectable. And I love finding these things about like crazed circus performers or murderous twin sisters uh, that, that kind of remind you the movies have always been weird. So that was definitely, definitely a highlight. And then rewatches were just things like Harry Potter, the daughter I mentioned, she wanted to work through all of them before hmm. she left for school. That was really sweet and fun to do. Um, and I know you guys did a West... Anderson Marathon, Adam, with your family, looking yeah. forward to the French Dispatch. We kind of did a mini one. My younger daughter had already seen his animated films, so we caught her up on on the other stuff, which was a ton of fun. And um, yeah, we're still waiting for the French Dispatch, aren't we? Right, we are. So certainly Wes Anderson made my list as well. I hate making you happy, Josh. What I'm about to say is just going to fill you with so much joy. But <laughs> it is true that as my oldest was also going off to college, I was trying to gear up for that this summer and send him off the right way by making sure that he had seen these Wes Anderson films. And also my daughter, Sophie, who a lot of listeners know is becoming a cinephile herself. I thought she needed to see these movies. And for me, revisiting and yes, reappraising the fantastic Mr. Fox and the Grand Budapest Hotel qualify for me as discoveries of 2020. I thought Mr. Fox was always fine. I thought it was definitely better than fine this time in the Grand Budapest Hotel, which I was kind of famously mixed on two and a half stars in my initial viewing of the movie. Something about maybe seeing it in the context of all of his other films, maybe just not putting so much pressure on it this time and rolling with it a little bit. I always knew Ray Fiennes was incredible in it. I wasn't really denying that, but now I certainly think it's one of Anderson's masterpieces. I don't know where I have it ranked, but I think it's in the top four for sure. 
I well, I love do love hearing this. And if I were to peg kind of an Anderson film right now, that would be your favorite. I kind of think it would be the Grand Budapest Hotel. I'm not right. sure exactly why. It's just it's just my instinct. So I'm I'm glad to hear you've moved a little closer to that position. Well, I know you're never wrong the first time you watch a movie and review it, but I was wrong <laughs> this time. So okay, well, and it's kind of you to say. Yeah, I reconciled that on rewatch. I mentioned this when we did a show. Man, it feels like 100 years ago where we talked about what we were watching in quarantine, but I inadvertently started a Bruce Surtees marathon, and I'm looking forward to watching more films that I have on my list from that cinematographer from the 70s. It started with me just kind of wanting to fill in a blind spot and see all of Dirty Harry with Clint Eastwood, and I noticed at the end who the cinematographer was, certainly took note of how it was shot, and then I thought, you know, I have never seen somehow Bob Fosse's Lenny. I should really watch that too. And at the end, that gorgeous black and white, and you see cinematography by Bruce Surtees. So then I said, okay, now now I've got to keep going with this. And I watched the 1975, I think, neo-noir directed by Arthur Penn, starring Gene Hackman, Night Moves. And these are all very good movies that are worth catching up with. And there was another one, actually. I saw Pale Rider, another, of course, famous Clint Eastwood Western that Bruce Surtees shot. One of the marathons I did with my entire family, at least with all the kids, was to watch all of Miyazaki's films, and there were a couple that I hadn't seen. How about discovering that Porco Rosso, a film that I think kind of gets overlooked against the Howl's Moving Castles of the World and Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away, I actually think it's one of his best, so that was fun for me. Watching all the President's Men with my entire family, including, of course, my history-obsessed son, Holden, not just history obsessed, but presidency obsessed son Holden. And then he's got in Quinn, his 13 year old brother, someone who wants to be just like him and is following in those same footsteps. Everybody was blown away by that great Alan Pakula film. So that was that was reassuring to me, Josh, because now I don't have to divorce myself from my entire family. So, so this is really just a litmus test you, yeah. you're putting before all of your family members. That's it. Now, I am <laughs> realizing... Enough. This was kind of a year of discovering or rediscovering movies from the 70s, right? I think everything I've mentioned has come from the 70s, except the Miyazaki and the Wes Anderson. How about finally being able to cross off Jean Dielman, that Chantel Ackerman film from 1975 as part of our Overlooked Auteurs marathon and just truly feeling the magnitude of that cinematic achievement. That's one that will stay with me certainly well beyond 2020. And I do have a listener note here, Josh, that ties back to Letterboxd, which you mentioned, and also that overlooked auteurs marathon. Josh Weinhold wrote in and said, not sure if you saw this as part of Letterboxd year in review materials or not, but I thought this was pretty awesome and evidence of the power of film spotting. Letterboxd released a list that showed the most watched films from every year during 2020, so just one per year. And the movie from 1943 that Letterboxd users watched the most was Meshes of the Afternoon. Mm. Josh says, unless there's been some other source driving Maya Darren reappreciation, I would attribute this popularity entirely to the film spotting marathon. Clearly, the auteurs you highlighted are not nearly as overlooked. Now, I know there were other listeners who were like me, who saw that their most watched director in 2020 was Christopher Nolan. So yeah, people have definitely been participating. And that was reflected in some of those year-end materials from Letterboxd. Maya Darren was completely new to me. And I know that may be somewhat hard to believe because there are a lot of people listening who may be in film school right now who have actually seen some of her stuff or who went to film school and were shown her work. 
I studied film in school as well. And Maya Darren never came up until I was putting together the list of options that we eventually watched. Let's just take credit for that. Okay. For the Maya totally. Darren love that, that was there on letterbox. And yeah, that's a gr- it's a great place. You know, as is obvious now, we watched a fair amount of stuff that we didn't get to on the show. Um, but People can keep up with us on Letterboxd. We we both log um, what we are watching there. I usually end up writing a, at least a paragraph about everything that I do see or revisit. And yeah, I mean, there are other just things. I'm thinking back on the year Pretty in Pink I watched probably for the first time since being a teen House of Wax, the Vincent Price horror movie and, and an Elvis movie, Viva Las Vegas was also in my viewing diary hmm. from last year. So, so yeah, follow us there on Letterboxd and um, see what else we're up to. Absolutely. Now, I don't want to get too sappy, but one more discovery I feel like we have to mention. Not only Patreon, finally taking the plunge with Patreon and having so many film spotting listeners follow us there and support us there as film spotting family members, but specifically trivia spotting. Josh, a film spotting family member, our quiz master, Thomas Todd, came to us kind of mid last year, said, I'd love to help you with this. Is it something you guys would like to do to connect with your audience? You can't do live shows, but maybe we could do something at least monthly where you do get to have some FaceTime and just get to have some movie fun with other cinephiles and film spotting listeners. And we've done six of them now. I don't anticipate a world where we're not doing at least one trivia spotting per month, not only having 60 to 70 hardcore listeners join us, but having some of our guest critics. Michael Phillips is a regular contributor there, as he is here on the show. Folks from The Next Picture Show. How about guys like David Wayne, the director, Nia DaCosta, the filmmaker, Tom King, the comics writer. We even had Dana Stevens from Slate even joined us recently. And that was wonderful having her back on trivia spotting every month is just something I know a lot of our listeners look forward to. I look forward to it. One of the few bright spots of last year. So I wanted to take a moment to call it out. Yeah. I, I, think of so many weeks that were very dark weeks for various reasons. And then we would have uh, trivia spotting either that Friday night or, or I think we did a Saturday afternoon and it was just kind of such a relief to be able to hang out, have a little fun, take the weight off um, and uh, get to know listeners better. So it's been great. All right. We've now shared our favorite opening scenes. We've talked about the scenes that made us laugh the most in 2020. What about the scenes that made us cry, Josh, your most moving moment? So the first one I want to mention here, an honorable mention, I've spent a lot of time talking about, if not spoiling. Uh, It comes from one of my top 10 films of the year, Relic, the horror film Relic. I'm just going to call it the tender touch and let people, if they haven't seen Relic yet, experience that. I'm Um, sorry, Josh. Tasha Robinson's calling in right now. She she wants to just jump in and say a few words. Oh, yeah, that that was uh, that was peak Tasha. Um, we love her, love her for that. Um, there's another moment in Education, which is the last installment in Steve McQueen's Small Axe anthology, and this one centers on a young boy um, who's facing all kinds of challenges at school. One of them is that um, he has difficulty reading, and the boy is played by Kenya Shady, and. 
about maybe this is halfway through the film, his mother, who's, you know, very demanding of him, especially in his schoolwork, she forces him to try to read out loud in front of her. This is in the family living room. His sister, his older sister is there. She knows about his struggles. The mother doesn't quite know about them yet. And this sequence plays out where as he's being forced to read kind of at his mother's feet, she's sitting on the couch where his sister is as well. He just kind of reaches out and grabs his older sister's hand. She holds him there. And then when he really, it's kind of shown that he's not going to be able to make it through this passage. It ends up with his mother hugging him. And that's not what you expect her to do, given what you've seen. Um, the sister being there, I think, is part of that. And it's just kind of this this group hug where by recognizing this challenge, the family finally comes together. It's just incredibly moving and so softly played. Um, it's played way softer than I just described it by McQueen. I'll just tell you that. Um, how many moments could I pick from Dick Johnson is Dead? Maybe yep. the most moving film of the year for me. I'm going to go with a very tiny one. And this speaks, uh, Adam, to... Um, I've talked a lot about how Dick Johnson is dead is different from camera person. Kirsten Johnson's other um, hugely successful documentary. There is one editing moment that reminded me of it, though, um, in terms of bringing kind of disparate footage together. And it's it's a very moving one for me. There's a cut from Dick Johnson um, carefully walking down the steps of a movie trailer while they're filming. And you can see his frailty. He doesn't want to, to, to slip and fall. So he's holding onto a railing, I think, or, or he's being helped down the steps, maybe even. Johnson cuts away to old home movie footage of him, younger, still an older man, but younger when his wife was alive, holding her hand and helping her Mm. walk down a hill. And it's just, I mean, the brilliance of that connection, but also the fact that I've talked about, you know, my relationship with my grandfather connected to this movie. And that reminded me also of so many times I would see my grandfather holding my grandmother's hand as they walked along, you know, and it was just, oof, what, what a little touch that is. Not my pick though. All right. My pick comes from the 40-year-old version, um, and it's Mama May I. This is um, an improvised uh, rhyme that we get in this film. One of the serious through lines in the 40-year-old version is, you know, it's a very funny comedy, but it also um, has this through line of lost mothers. And uh, that's one thing that Rada Blank, the star, also the writer-director, that uh, she shares with the hip-hop producer with whom she starts this relationship with in the movie. Both of their mothers have died. He's played by Oswin Benjamin. And there's this intimate, vulnerable scene between the two of them where he starts improvising um, this rhyme, Mama May I, where he speaks words of love and appreciation directly to his own late mother. Mama, Mama May I. Mama. Mama, may I? Mm-hmm. Mama, may I? Mama, may I? Mama, may I? Tell you how much I love you. Mm-hmm. And I would give all of these beats equipment up just for one more chance to hug you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mama, may I? Mama, may I? Tell you how much I miss you. Mm-hmm. They preach all this masculinity, shit, but if you was here, I'd kiss you. Wow. After a moment, he kind of softly invites Rada to to take a turn, and she does, maybe somewhat a little reluctantly, and ends up addressing her own mother, really confronting her mother's death directly, you get the sense, for the first time. We've seen hints that this is not something she's really been able to deal with yet. Mama, may I? Mama, 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 may I? Ha, ha. 
Mama, may I say I wonder sometimes, like, are you the person feeding these rhymes? And if I'm not creating art, am I committing a crime? Mama, may I? Because sometimes I just be missing you, like, wishing you were here instead of out there somewhere. Mama, may I? Mama, 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 may I? May I? May I? I love the choices that Blank makes as director here, too. There's uh, a quick insert shot of Rada as a little girl with her mother, a photo of them together many years earlier, just real quick, like a second or two. Um, and there's also the choice, this whole scene, most of it plays out in like black and white silhouette. So it's kind of like the camera doesn't want to intrude too closely or give us too much mm-hmm. of this very private exchange, but keep this little little bit of distance that for me makes it all the more moving. So, so that's my pick, uh, Mama May I from the 40-year-old version. Yeah, I really like that moment as well. And I mentioned before how much I like that performance by Oswin Benjamin as D, a character who up to this point, let's just say he's not very expressive. I mean, kind of the joke around his character is that he doesn't really talk. And then you've got Rada, who is very expressive, but like you said, is certainly holding a lot in. And she's so irreverent and sarcastic that in that moment when those two things kind of collide in those two characters and they share this moment together – It is very jarring to have such earnestness in this movie, but I really do think it works. And I think what you were maybe getting at is there's just enough restraint there by blank as a filmmaker to pull it off. So I've got three big contenders or at least three big movies to choose from, and they're all documentaries from 2020. I'll just call it the reunion hug from Garrett Bradley's film Time. There are multiple moments in that film, like Dick Johnson is Dead, I could point to, but that's the one where the waterworks really began for me, Josh. And then you said it, Kirsten Johnson's Dick Johnson is Dead, that moment, not one I recalled, added to the list. You're right, very good. But there's at least four others to choose from. A couple of conversations between father and daughter, one when they're talking about having to leave the house and they're reflecting on this home that Kirsten as a girl grew up in and that he has spent most of his life, certainly as an adult in, and they reflect a little bit on the mother who has passed there. That hit me really hard. And then later in the movie, after he's already moved to New York and she has to go away on business, she has to go shoot something, I think maybe in Israel. Oh, yeah. And just the questions he asks and- that that departure is a very tough one, obviously, for for Kirsten and her father, but for us as viewers, too. The two that it really came down to for me, and I guess I'm just going to go ahead and unite them in a tie here. The funeral scene where we get the eulogy done by Dick Johnson's friend, mm-hmm. Ray, where he really breaks down. And you see that moment where this is a completely constructed, artificial scenario. And yet just Ray having to process what is inevitable, the passing of his friend, is too much for him to take. It's also a contender for funniest moment of the year and music moment of the year, I suppose. He plays some kind of horn. It's just this terrible, awkward, screeching sound. It goes on very long, and you start to even see kind of the the audience assembled at this uh-huh. funeral getting a little bit uncomfortable and not sure whether or not they should be laughing or they should be crying. But that 
really kind of sums up Dick Johnson is dead in a nutshell, right? That use of kind of dark humor mixed with real sadness and sentimentality. But the moment that maybe even gets me even more is honestly the closing shot of the film. And it's just a hug. And at that point, I'll be honest, maybe I was naive and I missed something as I watched the movie, but not knowing for sure by the time we get to the end of the movie, what Dick Johnson's status was, whether he is alive or dead truly. There's a moment where she emerges from a closet recording a piece for the film and you get a smile that Mm. is so pleasing and happy and also kind of devastating in its own way. But for me, the number one most moving moment of the year, and this is after rewatching all these moments and just kind of reacting to the one that hit me the hardest. It is that moment we've talked about a lot from Benjamin Rees documentary, the painter and the thief where Carl Bertel sees his portrait, the first portrait of him that this Czech artist, Barbara Kisilkova has made. It comes pretty early into the movie. It's about 16 minutes in. And at this point we've seen the, stealing of her paintings we've seen her confront one of the thieves carl bertel who the police found and we've seen them try to connect or at least her try to connect with him and kind of understand who he is and what might have driven him to do this thing that obviously hurt her very much as an artist and a person and i think she's done this portrait josh all from memory She's sketched him. We've seen some scenes earlier where he's kind of sitting on the couch and she's done some drawings. But this painting is one that she has just done from her memory. And she shows it to him when he comes over. He doesn't even see it at first behind her. And she draws attention to it by saying, it's just started. But then you see him lock eyes with it. And Re doesn't show us the painting for a little bit. He lets it play out where we just watch Carl Bertel react. Yeah, yeah. It's just started. Of course, a lot of work still. Whoa. But, uh, it's just started. What the f? <laughs> you didn't I. You did this from. No. Whoa. <laughs> it really is this beautiful color portrait of him and he's dipping his fingers into a glass of red wine the part that kills me josh is when he just kind of utters the word no no it's almost childlike he's just so amazed and in a state of disbelief he can't fathom i think that she made that and that she did that of him and ostensibly for him. He doesn't he doesn't know what else to do except almost to shake his head and dismiss it with a no. And then we just get that long pause. Unblinking, breathing, followed by actual weeping. And that's really the the whole endeavor of this movie in a nutshell, the experiment of sorts that it is in empathy. A painter seeing a thief as more than just that and vice versa. And it's the same for us. As viewers, I think it's all encapsulated in this scene. And of course, it's also about the power of art to help heal and to transform the way someone even sees himself or herself. It's just an overwhelming scene of catharsis. And this moment where we recognize that they are going to be able to bond with each other, that they are truly going to be able to connect. This is a building of trust 
between the two of them where I think he recognizes anyone who can render him in that way must be someone who can see and feel deeply and see something in him that maybe he doesn't even see until that vision is reflected back on him. Well, you mentioned that it comes early on, and I think that's why, right? Because, you know, wherever it actually happened in their relationship, for us as viewers, once we see that connection formed, we understand what we're going to see throughout the rest of the film, the depth of the relationship, as you say, and the connection that they make. Yeah, it's crucial that we see that connection early on. All right, we make a lot of picks and do a lot of rankings on film spotting, but we really only have one actual award that we give each year. That's the Golden Brick. We're going to announce the 2020 winner of our Emerging Filmmaker Honor when we come back, and we'll also share our Scene of the Year picks. Stay with us. music moment there from 2020 courtesy of one of our golden brick nominees that's sydney flanagan in the opening scene to never rarely sometimes always we'll get back to our rap party including our favorite music moments of the year in a bit but first josh we do have some business to take care of we have to announce our 2020 golden brick winner this award goes to our favorite movie of the year from a new or emerging filmmaker a prize we've been giving out since 2009 an homage to one of our favorites here on the show, Ryan Johnson and his debut film, Brick. 2020, it's definitely up there in terms of the best crop of nominees we've ever had. And it's certainly a year that turned us on to a number of filmmakers who were new to us. Yeah, I'm looking at the list here, which we'll go through. And I think only two of these filmmakers their names would have been familiar to me before I saw saw their movies. And that's the point, right? That's what we want to do with The Brick. So this was a really exciting group to encounter. The seven Brick finalists, now these are cold, from the 12 films that we did shortlist, 12 overall. Here are the seven finalists. Kitty Green's The Assistant, Blow the Man Down, again, that directed by Bridget Savage-Cole and Danielle Crudy. We also have Darius Martyr's Sound of Metal, The Vast of Night from Andrew Patterson, The Painter and the Thief from director Benjamin Ree, Eliza Hittman's Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, and the documentary Time from director Garrett Bradley. We've already hit on a couple of these in our categories, Adam, which I think speaks to how good, how strong these films were. Mm -hmm. And Josh, as I look at the list, we talk about new or emerging filmmakers because we want to allow for the fact that maybe these are new filmmakers to us, even if they've maybe released one or two feature films before. As I see it, I think only Darius Martyr's Sound of Metal, Andrew Patterson's The Vast of Night, and maybe Blow the Man Down are the three by first-time filmmakers. Does that seem right? 
That sounds right. I'm not sure if Garrett Bradley has done a documentary before, but I will look that up as we talk here. So while you're doing that, I'll explain how this gets decided. You and I get a vote. Our producer, Sam Van Halgren, gets a vote. The Film Spotting podcasting and radio family gets a vote. That includes Michael Phillips from The Tribune and the Next Picture Show hosts Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Genevieve Kosky, and Keith Phipps. Also, Matt Singer and Allison Wilmore. Yep, they still have voting rights, former hosts of the Film Spotting streaming video unit podcast. And you, the listeners, get a vote. Some math is involved, not heavy math. And we ultimately land on a winner. So let's see how that played out, starting with the results of the listener poll. We know our listeners take a lot of ownership for the brick, as they should. They send us brick recommendations throughout the year. We do definitely rely on those. And the award did start as a way to recognize movies that we champion on the show that listeners maybe only heard about because we talked about them. We had over 1,700 listeners vote in this poll. How did it come out? 3% of the vote went to The Painter and the Thief. 4% went to Time. And yes, I did check Garrett Bradley. She's directed two previous features in 2014 and 2015, but Time, her first feature documentary. Below the Man Down was next in the voting with 9% of the vote. The Assistant received 10% of the vote. And then a little more tightly grouped here at the top, The Vast of Night. With 19% of the vote, never rarely, sometimes always, 21% of the vote. But taking the listener poll for the Golden Brick this year is Sound of Metal with 34% of the vote. Listener John Dembski says, honestly, after a year of turmoil, both global and personal, it's uplifting just to see so many different and deserving films on this list. The Golden Brick is a unique award. It's an award about anticipation and hope, things we all need more of. My vote goes to Garrett Bradley's time, but I'm excited by so many of the directors on this list that I kind of don't care who wins as long as Film Spotting promises to check in with the next movies of all these filmmakers. Cheers to independent cinema, a rare bright spot of 2020. Here's Caleb Villa. My vote went to Benjamin Rees, The Painter and the Thief. It's a beguiling dissection of the personal influence that art can hold on an individual. Documentaries about the universally fickle, egotistical human beings seem to ignore the obvious truth that cameras inherently alter how people behave. The painter and the thief makes that truth its thesis. Well said, Caleb. Tom Fotheringham in Salt Lake City says, As I prepared to vote, my cursor hovered over Sound of Metal, which moved me deeply on the strength of its involving sound design and Riz Ahmed's powerhouse performance. It then drifted to The Vast of Night, which I had finished only minutes earlier and still sat in awe of its clever editing and brilliant camera work. It nearly settled on Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, which I might consider the best overall film in this worthy slate of candidates. However, I couldn't stop myself from dragging it over to The Assistant and casting my vote for Kitty Green's narrative feature debut. As I understand the purpose of The Golden Brick, it is to honor the burgeoning filmmaker as much as the film itself. And of all these directors, Kitty Green is the one I'm most excited to hear from again. I think I'm with you there, Tom. Here's Brad Allen, the key variable for the Golden Brick. Since Ryan Johnson inspired this award with Brick is promising toolbox and vision as a filmmaker. Many filmmakers can produce one masterpiece with a lucky script or a doc with an unbelievable setup, but the Golden Brick goes to the one who shows so clearly that this new filmmaker not only understands all the filmmaking tools and can apply them to stories and characters that justify the technical flourishes and also write those stories. All these films are good. I love them all. But only one director here is a next Cohen, Spielberg, Linklater, Varda, Anderson, Spike Lee, QT, Lynch. (laughs) 
And that's no Andrew pressure. Patterson. I know. I was just thinking, boy, whoever whoever he's about to name is really in for it. Well, he's naming Andrew Patterson with the Vast of Night. I had similar slack-jawed experiences watching all the other best directors we love. This kid is the 100% genuine article. Let's help him on his way. High praise there, Brad. For sure. Carol Levinson says, I asked myself, which of these films will I still be thinking about in a year, 10 years, 20 years? And that film is never, rarely, sometimes, always. So you see what our producer has done here, Josh Sam. He loves to spread the love. He wants to make sure that just because Sound of Metal won it with 34% of the vote, we're not giving proper attention and regard to all of the films that competed against it. Finally, we'll get to Jonathan, someone who picked Sound of Metal. I could have voted in good conscience for any of the movies on this list. All of them challenged my sense of what good cinematic storytelling looks like, and all of them inspired wonder and awe around the resilience of certain distinct, very real human beings who find themselves in seemingly impossible circumstances. Sound of Metal narrowly gets my vote over Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, because no film more accurately or more movingly showed me what it feels like to be an outsider graciously embraced by a new community. I was astounded by how accurately the film amplifies this effect with its exquisite sound design, cinematography, and unforgettable performances. Sound of Metal, I think my number four film of the year, Josh, certainly in my top five. That is where I voted I think you betrayed your pick. Your number one was Kitty Green's The Assistant. Yep. In my top 10, it's seven, I think. And after all the votes were tabulated, we asked all of the people I mentioned to rank the films in order from their favorite to least favorite. Of course, we considered the listener picks in there as well. And this is how it came out, Josh. Third place, The Vast of Night. Second place, The Assistant. But first place and your 2020 Golden Brick winner, it is a case, it doesn't always happen, where we have crossover. The listener's choice winner is the ultimate winner, Darius Martyr's Sound of Metal. Congratulations to Martyr, to the movie. And here's where, you know, when we were doing this live, we would have Abraham Levitan with with uh, the music to kind yes. of really make this a big moment. Maybe we've got that on file somewhere. We can bring it <laughs> Maybe. in. Yeah. But yeah, well-deserved um, Sound of Metal for the Golden Brick. It's the Golden Brick Award. Put on your helmet and your sword. Bow down to the lords of independent cinema. It's the Golden Brick Award. I hope you have your helmet and your sword. I hope you've bowed down to your lord. Salvation for the sin in ya. We said there would be no math, but I'm going to give everyone just a little bit of insight into how close this was, because you heard lots of great explanations for how wonderful all of the contenders are. Once we get that final ranking, the score we're looking at is its average placement. And the assistant, its final score was 2.73. So obviously, after you average it all out, it finished in second, maybe closer to third. Sound of Metal, 2.45. So I know everyone's maybe having terrible flashbacks to 
election recounts. Yes, I, <laughs> this I past have no, November. No idea what you just said. I know. My takeaway is that it was close. Yeah, I think it was probably within the Georgia margin where we have to do a retabulation. It would be fairly quick oh with only with only eleven votes being tallied. But that's how close. It was. I'm really happy with the final choice. I know, Josh, even though it wasn't your number one, you too are very happy to see it there in the top slot. And we hope to have Darius Martyr here on the show at some point. He can officially accept his Golden Brick Award for 2020. Thank you to everyone for watching these films, everyone for voting. And if you'd like more information about the Brick, including all of our previous winners, it's a formidable list. We've got good instincts, Josh, so do our listeners. And if you want to see all the past nominees, that's all at filmspotting.net slash bricks, a webpage that I will have to be updating shortly, not only with our 2020 winner, you've already got a 2021 choice to put on the list. Yeah, let's new year. Let's get it rolling. Let's start uh, talking Golden Brick 2021. I'm going to nominate for the shortlist identifying features. This is a Spanish language film. It is a directing debut, comes from Fernanda Valadez, and it made its debut last year at Sundance. So 2020 Sundance is when it first played, hit a couple of festivals, virtual festivals as the year went on, but it's finally opening this weekend to general audiences via virtual art house screens, including right here in Chicago, the Gene Siskel Film Center will benefit from your viewing of it uh, digitally. Basically, it's about a mother, a middle-aged woman traveling across Mexico in search of her son, who she's been told he had left with a friend to try to make it to Arizona. And she's been told by authorities that he has died along the way. She doesn't quite believe that. So she goes in search of him. Along the way during her journey, she encounters a 20-something man who has just been deported from the U.S. named Miguel. He's played by David Ileskis. The woman is played by Mercedes Hernandez. And uh, he's trying to reunite with his family. They kind of cross paths. So it's interesting to think of this as a golden brick, Adam, because the the main feature of this film is its quietness. And it struck me that it takes a certain boldness, a certain confidence for a filmmaker, especially a first-time director, to make a quiet movie, one that isn't going to grab you by the neck. And a lot of times that's what we like about these golden brick nominees. That Mm -hmm. vision is right there in front of us. And this is a very patient, very observant film for much of its running time as it's tracing Magdalena's journey. It kind of reminded me actually never rarely, sometimes always is also, I think a very quiet film and it's like it a little bit aesthetically, but also in terms of narrative as we're following this, this uh, woman making her unlikely way through menacing societal systems, really. Also reminded me of Deborah Granick's Winter's Bone in that degree. So those are two very strong films that came to mind. But then, and here is what kind of launched this into Golden Brick territory for me, suddenly we get these flourishes later in the film where Valadez as director kind of does grab us. And uh, just one of them, I'm not going to give it away, but when Magdalena does start to get a hint of what might have happened to her son. The way Valadez decides to show that with a combination of, it's a story that's being told to her by a man, not speaking in Spanish, not speaking in English. So we get to hear his words and they're not subtitled. So we're kind of lost. We get images of what happened, but they're kind of bleary and smeared. It's it's almost like a vision. 
And at this point, the movie had taken on a totally different aesthetic. And it actually reminded me, if anyone's seen Post Tenebras Lux from Mexican director Carlos Regadas, which just has this sort of transcendental terror to it, suddenly identifying features takes that on. So so this is, you know, on its own terms, it's a very enthralling movie, but also has a lot of these qualities we do look mm. for in a golden brick. So I wanted to get wanted to get the campaign started with yeah. identifying features. Sounds fascinating. Identifying Features opens this weekend on virtual art house screens, including Chicago's Gene Siskel Film Center. Kinomarquee.com is where you can go to see how to watch it in support of your local independent theater. Next week here on Film Spotting, we will officially usher in the new year with our 2021 preview. We will share, as we usually do, our top five questions about the new movie year. And sadly, Josh, there remain a whole lot of questions about the new movie year, such as, I don't know. When will things return to anything like normal for the movies? Yeah. I doubt we will have answers by next week. (laughs) Will any of these release dates stick? I mean, this is going to be a challenge, but we're going to do it. We're also going to try to announce our new plans for 2021 because we've got some ideas for our next couple of film spotting marathons, a few good candidates for our next oeuvre review where we revisit a celebrated filmmaker's filmography in chronological order. We want to continue our best movie year ever series where we've of course done the nineties. We've done the eighties. We've got it narrowed down to two years from the seventies, but we don't want to give any of that away. We'll try to build suspense and share it here next week on film spotting. Over at filmspotting.net, there is a new poll inspired by the 2021 preview. The question is simply, which spring 2021 film are you most hopeful about seeing on the big screen? And there's only two options, I guess three if you count other. And yes, one of them already, we're not sure, is really going to come out in spring. Josh, the choices are. Yeah, there's there's been sort of rumors, reports that the new Bond, No Time to Die, might be pushed back beyond its April 2 date. But as of right now, I think that's what they're saying. So that's one option. No Time to Die, the Bond film. The other is the new Edgar Wright film, Last Night in Soho. Right now, that's got an April 23 release. So for me, you know, I'm not anti-Bond, but um, we've had a lot of Bonds. I'm going to vote Edgar Wright. We, ha- we haven't had enough Edgar Wright films yet. So that's the hmm. one I would go with. Okay, well, I haven't done any homework yet in preparation for this next episode, but I'm just for now going to say other because I think maybe there's some other choice coming out in spring that excites me even more than those two, even though I am really eager to see both of them. You can vote in the poll and leave a comment over at filmspotting.net. We'll share the results here in a couple of weeks. And. We hope that we haven't just jinxed that No Time to Die release date. This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, they've got Drinking Buddies Part 1. Such a good pairing. They're really smart over there. I don't know if you know that, Josh, but they're pretty good at what Mm -hmm. they do. The Next Picture Show. Pairing Thomas Vinterberg's Another Round, a movie that's a top 15 movie of 2020 for me, with Alexander Payne sideways. So, you know, middle-aged men, sort of midlife crisis revolving around alcohol. I'm not sure that I need to go down that personal rabbit hole right now and revisit (laughs) both of these films, but it sounds like fun listening. Is Sideways one you've seen? I mean, that was such a thing when it came out in 2004. I I don't think I've seen it since then. So it'll be fascinating to see how it plays. Yeah, I agree. And I would like to make time for it. I don't know that it's likely to happen, but I say that because I know from looking on Twitter that at least one of the Next Picture Show hosts 
reconsidered it and now doesn't really feel as strongly about it as they used to. Maybe it hasn't aged that well. And I remember, I believe Sam and I reviewed it on the show and there was something Sam found a little too cynical and a little too smug about it and didn't like it. And that was Sam being, you know, contrarian Sam at the time. I went for it like most critics did, but I do wonder if I might see what Sam saw back then in this rewatch. Alexander Payne, smug and cynical. I I I don't, I don't know how that could be. Over at The Next Picture Show, your hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find more info at nextpictureshow.net. Look what you've done, Josh. Watch out now for the Nebraska stands. Hey, Nebraska, a film we both like quite a bit, I think. Yeah, good movie. (laughs) One way you can support the show is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. A mere $5 a month gets you ad-free episodes, early show downloads, monthly bonus episodes, and, yes, monthly trivia spotting. This month's episode, which we have not recorded yet, month behind on it. We did provide bonus content in December, just a different variety. We do still have to get to a listener-suggested bonus content pick, and that's our favorite film directors working in TV, or maybe more specifically, which film directors we'd like to see take a stab yes. at TV. Yes, I believe that's, that was that was yeah. the task. Okay. We did also reach our goal of 1,000 patrons. Thank you so much. And actually, we Zoomed buy it. Everyone must have been feeling generous over the holidays. We will be scheduling a virtual watch party soon. We may even get your vote, ask you to pick between a few choices we did out of sight the first time when we reached 900, and it'll be a fun conversation to land on another movie and do that virtual watch with our family members. We also remind you that annual memberships are now available. Instead of the $5 a month, you can pay In one lump sum, up front for the whole year, you get a 10% discount. That's actually a little more than one month for free. Patreon.com slash film spotting. Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton. We get back into our 2020 rap party with a clip from one of the movie events of 2020, Hamilton. Our next rap party category is music moments. What audio moved you this year? I'm going to start, Adam, with a pick that I think is great. I had actually forgotten about it, and our previous production assistant, Andy Mitchell, wrote in. And uh, I'll just quote what he sent us. This is Andy picking a moment from Spike Lee's To Five Bloods. It's when radio DJ Hanoi Hanna dedicates a Marvin Gaye song to the black U.S. forces fighting in Vietnam and what's going on plays. I dedicate this next record to brother Marvin Gaye and to the sole brothers of the 1st Infantry Divisions, Big Red One, 2nd Battalion, 136 Regiment. Have a good day, gentlemen. Mother, mother, there's too many of you crying. 
Brother, brother, brother. Now, it would be pretty surprising if that song didn't show up in a movie about the Black experience with that war. But Lee's choice, working with music supervisor Rochelle Clairbaugh and composer Terrence Blanchard to play an a cappella version of What's Going On, using only Marvin's voice and words, makes what might have been an obvious needle drop into a poignant and graceful one, as it underscores the pain and trauma our heroes have endured in Vietnam, both past and present. You see, war is not the answer. For only love can conquer hate. You know we've got to find a way to bring some loving here today. Oh. So yeah, I think that's a great one that Andy highlighted. Um, as far as others I did consider, I'm Your Woman, the Julia Hart film starring Rachel Brosnahan, which I don't think I've talked about on the show at all. I did like it. It has this really nice moment where Brosnahan talks about singing Aretha Franklin's You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman as a lullaby to her baby, and she does give a few bars there in the scene. I like that a lot. I did talk about in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I mean, so much music there, right? But I just love that aside when Glenn Turman's piano player improvises this piece about the quote-unquote stew of Africans who have gathered in America. Now, you take and you eat that stew. You, you take and you make your history with that stew. But you look around and you see some carrots over there and some peas over here. And that stew is still there. You done made your history, and it's still there. You can't eat it all. (laughs) What you got? You got some leftovers, that's what it is. See, we's the leftovers. The colored man, he is the leftovers. (laughs) And then two contenders are in the sort of documentary, Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. I won't describe them, but I'll say one involves Roy Orbison's crying, and the other involves Sophie B. Hawkins, the gem from 1992, (laughs) Damn, I Wish I Was Your Lover. That's a song, Adam. I had totally forgot existed, Uh and then it it reappeared in, in the movie and was just perfect for the moment. So two great ones there from Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. My pick, however, it had to come from the movie music event from 2020, and I'm sorry, Hamilton, it is David Byrne's American Utopia. My pick is Hell You Tell About from later, probably about three quarters of the way through this concert documentary. As much as I loved the Byrne music, the Talking Heads music that we get here, this is the moment for me because I think it was the music moment for 2020, specifically this cover. It's a litany of the names of black victims of police and racial violence. Byrne begins it, but then steps back to give space to the whole troop as they come forward and take turns reciting names. Spike Lee as director here cuts away with um, these quick sequences where the camera zooms in on portraits of those who have been killed. And I just think it's it's a deserving moment for a 2020 rap party because of the Black Lives Matter protests over the summer that it speaks to. And really, if those feel like 
it was a long time ago now. We just have to look back at January 6th, right? And we saw the policing double standard on display when the Capitol was attacked by this largely white mega mob. Little immediate police response, totally different than anything else we've seen when the people meeting with police are not white. Just maddening and a reminder of why those summer protests were so vital, why a moment like this in American utopia is so crucial. So yeah, keep that protest art coming. This is this moment is a beautiful example of that, and it's my music moment for 2020. A very strong choice there, Josh. I actually considered American Utopia as well for one of the funniest moments of the year. And it's just kind of an aside one mentioned when we talked about that movie here on the show upon its HBO release. And that's when David Byrne talks about a group of high school kids doing one of his songs. And he knows how it was written and why it was written and the place it was coming from psychologically. And their version of it was completely different. Mm -hmm. And he says, I actually like their version better. And he says, you know, I am what I am. It's just a moment of just sheer honesty, right. brutal honesty and self-awareness, but also really gets a good laugh out of the crowd. I don't have any musicals here in my top five, but Josh, this is where the best dance moments of the year are really going to come to the fore. I've got four runners up that can be split up pretty neatly. You've got two that are really powerful geysers of emotion just finally bursting. So one of them is Carrie Coon in the nest. Don't leave me this way. Thelma Houston song is playing. I think she's just kind of at a pub. She's had a little bit of a row. She's dismissed her husband in front of some business people and said, I'm out of here. And she goes and she gets a bunch of drinks. And then she just expresses herself on the dance floor. We mostly see her, as I recall it, too, from behind, just dancing amidst the sea of people and just letting it all go. And there's a little bit of a distinction here between my two choices, Josh, because Carrie Coon's Allison isn't exactly repressed, right? You mentioned the dinner scene earlier. Like, mm -hmm. she's she's willing to say what's on her mind, at least to her husband, and she isn't that shy. And we go to my other choice, which is the ending. And so I'm just going to be very brief about it. But the ending of another round, the Mads Mikkelsen movie, the song is What a Life by Scarlet Pleasure. And Mikkelsen's character in that film is someone who is incredibly repressed and withdrawn and actually embarks on this whole experiment to get a little buzzed, if not drunk every day, because he needs to break out of that shell. And finally, with this music, and a dance performance by Mickelson that's really extraordinary. We see that raw expression. My other two runners-up are examples within their films where they're kind of timeouts. It's a hiatus or it's a prelude where everything is okay because what we have ahead and maybe even what we've seen before has not been okay at all. And so they really bring joy to your face as a viewer because of the interaction in the moment and the movement and the combination of the dance and the song, but also because you just feel like you get to take a breath for a second. So I'm thinking about in Emerald Fennel's Promising Young Woman, when we see Carrie Mulligan and her boyfriend, Bo Burnham, it's kind of the montage where she's been hesitant. She's been super skeptical and she's not sure she's going to give herself over to this guy or any guy for that matter. And they go to a pharmacy and they're shopping 
and a song that I had never heard before, Josh, that objectively is terrible. It just is. Paris Hilton's Stars Are Blind comes on, and Mulligan's character, Cassandra, doesn't want to give into it, but Bo Burnham's Ryan is relentless, and he's just such a goofball, and he starts moving to it and singing along with it, and eventually he gets her all caught up in it. I am going to admit that song that I just referenced a few moments ago as objectively terrible, Stars Are Blind, I might have added it to my iTunes library and played it a few times. Coming, coming around on Paris Hilton. It's about <laughs> coming time, around Adam. on the musical genius of Paris Hilton. That's what that scene did to me. Just watching those two finally kind of let loose and her give in to the frivolity of that moment. Something we've never seen from Cassandra up to that point in the film. And I mentioned I love Bo Burnham's performance in that movie. I think the movie really doesn't work. Not only without, of course, Mulligan's incredible performance, but without the chemistry she has with Burnham. You've already touched on Spike Lee, not only the director of American Utopia, but the Marvin Gaye reference that comes in the middle of De Five Bloods. For me, the key music moment in De Five Bloods is early on when the four men have finally come back together. They've reunited. This is just before they set out on their quest. And if you haven't seen it, spoilers, things don't go very well on that quest. So to watch them grooving to Marvin Gaye's Got to Give It Up, which truly it helps that it's one of the greatest jams of all time. But seeing those four men standing arm in arm next to each other as Thomas Newton Siegel's camera pulls back. It's almost a Spike Lee double dolly shot, but not really. The camera just kind of pulls back as they move towards it in rhythm together. Isaiah Whitlock Jr., Delroy Lindo, Clark Peters, Norm Lewis. Again, the music is great. All four of those guys move really well, too. And it starts with what I think is a great visual joke. I don't know how else to refer to it, but the scene starts on a DJ and above him or behind him is Apocalypse Now and like the movie poster. Yeah, right. I think it's the name of the bar, right? I think yeah, it might it probably be. is. And right below his DJ stand is the Budweiser logo. And it <laughs> yes. says this Bud's for you. And then we see them emerge and and dance in unison together away from that. And there is something about watching that, seeing the reference to Apocalypse Now, sort of how the Vietnam War has been rendered in our popular culture. Recognizing that these four men, the last time they were in this country, went through hell together, right? Why would they ever want to come back? Why would they ever want to relive any of this? And just like everything these days, no matter what part of the world you're in, everything's been reappropriated and commercialized. And the Vietnam War even feels like you can sponsor it. Budweiser logo there. Why not? I also did see today, Josh, when I was trying to find the clip of this scene that Delroy Lindo's Paul just the isolation on him dancing has apparently become a meme. And despite all the time I spend on Twitter, too much time on Twitter, I haven't actually seen it myself. I think Spike Lee himself on Twitter shared a, a gif of it. And there is something magical about Delroy Lindo's dancing. He is very subtle and maybe not even quite as expressive or physical as the other three men. But when you really focus on him, Man, is he feeling it. And I should then culminate this with an actual pick that is a dance scene as well. And we sometimes wrestle with this where we maybe have a true number one choice, 
but you also don't want to spoil anything. So maybe I'll just talk about the runner up instead. And in this case, I really would love to just keep it focused on dance scenes since that's my theme here. But I'm going to instead focus on authenticity and honesty, Josh, in this music moment. And the one that got me the hardest, one of the most moving moments of the year, in addition to the best music moment of the year, it's the ending of One Night in Miami. And I don't really want to say much more about it because whether or not talking about it would spoil anything by the true definition of the word spoiler, I just love this moment so much. And I know it's come out on Christmas Day, I think on VOD and people can see it, but it still feels too close to me. And I just really want as many people as possible to see this movie one night in Miami, my number three favorite film of the year. And I want them to see this ending and experience it like I did before I've really talked about it in any detail, even though probably most critics who have reviewed this movie mention it, at least in passing. Again, though, I'm going to keep it very vague. I'm just going to say the final musical number in One Night in Miami that doesn't just showcase an amazing performer and an amazing piece of music, but is the perfect culmination of the conflict that's at the core of that movie. All the key ideas that those four men, Jim Brown, Muhammad Ali, Sam Cooke, and Malcolm X are really wrestling with internally and with each other, they all come out in this final performance. And of course, those key conflicts, Josh, aren't just the key conflicts between these men or society in the 1960s, but really, as we've seen, and this goes back to your number one choice as well, conflicts that are still sadly at the core of America. Well, and that scene, I won't give anything away either, but it is one of the crucial moments Regina King as director chooses to move away from the central construct, right? And give us something that, as you're describing, emphasizes, reiterates, these central core ideas, but takes us out of that room and, and gives us something that relies, that does the same thing she's been doing in the dialogue scenes with the music. So yeah, yeah it's a pretty powerful moment. Well, we have gotten through all the categories except the big one scene of the year. What do you got, Josh? So if I called it as I did when we first reviewed never rarely, sometimes always the scene, you would think that it would have to be my scene of the year, right? That, that conversation that the main character, Sidney Flanagan, played by Sidney Flanagan, has with the counselor. It's it's going to be an honorable mention for me, but I wanted to cite it. And actually, I wanted to quote a listener, Dylan O'Connell, who suggested it on my Larson on Film Facebook page and said this. It's a really obvious choice, but I can't imagine picking anything else. The eponymous scene in Never Rarely, Sometimes Always was the best thing I saw all year. A whole movie's worth of emotionally weighty storytelling packed mostly into a single take with a few establishing shots. It's just a voice reading from a script and a face responding with a single word, or sometimes no words at all. But it's a real gut punch and lays the foundation for the whole movie. The acting needed to pull that off is unreal. So I'm going to ask you some questions. They can be really personal. And all you have to do is answer either never, rarely, sometimes, or always. It's kind of like multiple choice, but it's not a test. Okay. Okay. In the past year, your partner has refused to wear a condom. Never, rarely, sometimes, always. Sometimes. Okay. And your partner messes with your birth control or tries to get you pregnant when you don't want to be. Never, <coughs> rarely, 
Sometimes? Always? Uh, never. Okay. So yeah, totally with you, Dylan. I knew that was going to be on this list at the moment I was witnessing it. The other one, the other runner-up I'll mention here, Adam, I'm not going to spoil this one for anyone similar to what you said for One Night in Miami. If people still haven't caught up with Soul, there is an epiphany involving a whirlybird maple seed that I think, you know, the animation alone, the quality of the animation there is just stunning. But the way it works in with everything else that movie is doing is perfect. My pick, not a surprise, many people have cited this as their movie moment of the year. I wanted to be clever and go in a different direction, but it would just be dishonest to pick anything other than Silly Games in Lover's Rock, this group dance sequence in Steve McQueen's Small Axe installment. Others have pointed out, I think Aisha Harris brought it up on our top 10 show, Adam, when she made this her pick as movie of the year, that this, the entire film, but also this moment kind of of the couples dancing closely, you know, during this Janet Kay hit, it, it captured what we missed in 2020, the togetherness, right? There's just something extra powerful about seeing people being able to be together and that close in one place. Mm-hmm. Uh, it made me think of probably the last thing I did before quarantine and lockdown and all that was go to a concert at the hideout here in Chicago in a room probably, uh, if anyone's been to the hideout, not much bigger than this house party room we see in Lover's Rock, just packed with people um, listening to music. And that just was vaporized by 2020. So yeah, there's that element, of course, getting to see this scene in Lover's Rock. But, you know, watching it again for for this episode, I noticed other little details that are so great. The one woman dancing alone in the middle of the of the dance floor, just totally lost in the song. You know, mm-hmm. mostly this is couples taking this opportunity to be together, but there is this one woman who's just totally blissed out in the moment. I love the DJ's ad-libs. You know, this DJ group, Mercury Sound, they spent sure. a lot of the night shouting the name of their their, their group. Yep. But then at one point, the, the guy just says, you know, move your feet. You don't know who you'll meet. And speaking of the song itself, Silly Games, um, the guy who wrote it, Dennis Bavel, he's in a cameo in this sequence. Really? Dancing. Yeah. There's a moment where you get to see him and he's singing. He's singing it loud himself, just totally lost as well in the moment. So all of this is wonderful. But the key element here is when it turns acapella, when the DJ turns down the music and everyone just kind of takes over the song from Janet Kay. This is the distillation of Lover's Rock. It might be the distillation of small acts overall. They become this choir. It's this expression of community, of unity, creating this refuge, this this place of freedom, this protective communal space. It's a music moment. It's a moving moment. And so it's it's my scene of the year. Yes. Well, we will get back to that here in a second, Josh. My number five here, as I rank them, scene of the year contenders, Levy's monologue. 
Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, the great, the late, sadly, Chadwick Boseman. We got a sound we'd like to play, the long take from The Vast of Night. Number three, I'm going to go to another Steve McQueen installment in Small Axe, the Fight Me sequence that happens in the jail cell. Sean Parks there, the actor, took me back to falling in love with Steve McQueen's work the first time, watching Michael Fassbender stuck in a confined prison cell and raging. This is a moment when Parks' character has been taken out of the courtroom and is being abused by the police, and they throw him in. And this is the point where he really finally erupts throughout the whole film. He certainly had anger. We've seen the rage in his face, but he's always tried to just say, I just want to run a restaurant. I Mm -hmm. just want them to leave me alone. It's as if he he somehow thinks he can get past this at some point if he just plays everything cool. And this is the point where we finally see it's really gotten him nowhere. And he lets that frustration out. You mentioned Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always, and I thought a lot, Josh, about three movie scenes that were just difficult conversations, three standouts from the year. It's that one, the intake exam that you talked about. It's one I know you've brought up before as well, the visit to HR in The Assistant, Mm. where we see Julia Garner go talk to Matthew McFadden and not really get any assistance at all from him. And the real standout for me is the one I referenced in our top five when talking about Sound of Metal. And it's, have you had any moments of stillness? The conversation, the query, the question that Paul Racy's character, Joe, throws back at Riz Ahmed's Ruben. And this is another one I'm still going to dance around a little bit because I want people to see our golden brick winner for 2020 Sound of Metal if they haven't. But it's a scene that is really the heart of the movie and where it really kind of elevated to not just very good, but great for me. Racy just has such an expressive face on its own. And he is such a good listener. That's all he does is listen to Ruben. And you know that his character has seen all this before, has heard all this before, has had people like Ruben come and go over decades, probably in this therapeutic environment that he has built. And even though he knows exactly what Ruben's going to say and knows where the conversation is going, he not only doesn't interrupt, he doesn't even betray that he wants to interrupt. He's just going to let Ruben say what he has to say and wait for his chance to talk. And he's just got that weathered face, that seen it all before face that does all the work and he's going to hear him out. But then when it is his chance to talk, He's going to be honest with him, even if it means being brutally honest and hurting him. So that's kind of one B, if you will, in my favorite scenes of the year. But one A is Silly Games from Lover's Rock. It just has to be. It's the scene that made me the guy who experiences no greater anxiety than when he's at a wedding reception and is expected (laughs) to show some moves. Not just miss parties, Josh, sharing space with people you know sharing space with people you don't know. But it made me miss dancing. It made me actually want to dance. Nothing has ever made me feel that way. And I think it's the scene and movie of 2020 
for reasons you touched on, because it's incredible cinema, because it feels like it's speaking to our collective 2020 anxiety over isolation and loneliness due to COVID, over the racial divides in our country that were so horribly on display this year. And if I'm remembering the film right, there are a couple instances where McQueen shows us some cross imagery. I know the movie closes with a reference to going to church. I feel like maybe the movie opens with a nod to it as well. And you look at this living room space that's been converted to a dance floor. And for me, all that established was this is the church. This <laughs> is the sacred space. The only safe space in any of the small axe movies I've seen. I've still only seen three, so you can tell me, Josh, whether or not it's true of all five. But I think it's the only one of its kind in the entire series where we see black people being able to be themselves without any fear. And this moment, Silly Games, and particularly that moment, like you mentioned, where the music cuts out and yet it keeps going, that's the rapture. Mm. And that's what was conjured for me in that moment, watching those bodies sway, watching them sing, watching them give themselves completely over to this ecstasy. And that whole scene, I think I timed it right, is over 10 minutes long. Yeah. And you could definitely make the case that it could potentially be the scene of the year if McQueen gave us half of that or maybe seven or eight minutes. But honestly, it would defeat the entire point. I mean, it is the full commitment of these characters in this space, giving themselves over so thoroughly to the moment and the music that I feel like, honestly, if it was any shorter, even 10 seconds shorter, it didn't have that full time and space to breathe. It it wouldn't actually be as potent. And of course, a perfect choice for me as well, as I talked about so many of my favorite scenes of the year being dance scenes, this had to be number one. Now you've got me thinking uh, you must be listening to the Think Christian podcast, Adam, because really? we just, well, we just did our best of 2020 show and uh, yeah, a couple of the the guests on there brought up Lovers Rock and talked exactly really? in those terms, described that dance sequence because, you know, the way, the way we were considering it is is almost this more like this vision yes the church but also the vision of of what could be what should be so a vision of heaven you know this new mm. heaven new earth where yes there there is no worry there's no pain there's community there's music there's togetherness and that relates back to you know when I talked about it on our top 10 show this bubble that uh, McQueen creates and it gets it's not a perfect bubble in Lovers Rock even this sequence watching it again Adam it's very interesting the guy who's revealed to kind of be a predator, right? he bookends the Silly Game sequence. Yep. He's one of the first people we see as that song starts. And he kind of, he gets, I think he takes off his hat and he moves in on a woman to bring her into the dance mm -hmm. floor for this song. And then it ends with the two of them leaving the house and going in the backyard where we learn later that, that she's attacked. So it's this really intricate, complicated sequence that involves a little bit of the fall, even as it's giving us this, you know, really pure vision of heaven, hmm. um, which is just, you know, another reason why it's it's one of the, the scene of the year for me. 
I think we probably have some honorable mentions, not only for scene of the year, maybe some of the other categories that we could get to. I had a few just random moments that I loved that didn't fit into any of our categories, Josh. But you know what? Let's save them for next week. Maybe just give a nod to 2020 as we finally turn the page and look ahead to 2021 with our year preview. That will come next week because that's our show. It is. Thanks to everyone who shared their favorite moments. Uh, A lot of those came on social media. So if you're on Facebook or Twitter, you can find us. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over on the website, filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And that's where you can vote in the current film spotting poll. We are looking ahead, so we want to know what spring 2021 film are you most looking forward to seeing, hopefully in a movie theater. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop, and you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board, and special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at wbez.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.